Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I know how it is, Mother. You've had a long day and you must be tired. I'll just put you to bed and tuck you in for the night. I'll even say your prayers for you. Would you like that? Hello and welcome to another episode of Unequal Sequel. My name is Dave and I'm one of the two hosts of this extraordinary podcast. And I'm Rich and I'm the other one, the other host of this extraordinary podcast. Think of me as Sully to Dave's Mike Wazowski. I'm big and hairy and he's got one eye. Perfect. That's, that's, not, that's not actually true. He hasn't got one eye, but it was funny. <laughs> the premise of Unequal Sequel is very simple. We ask our guests for their best ever sequel, worst ever sequel, and finally their dream sequel. And of course, we quite often drift off course and have a good chat about movies and just have fun in general. And here's the spoiler warning. We do spoil movies, but they're normally basically about 20 to 30 years old, aren't they, Rich? So Yeah, we only spoil old movies. That's the rule. You have been warned. And on today's episode, we are joined by Jordan King. Uh, Jordan is a journalist and film critic. He's written for loads of different publications, including Empire Magazine and Savvy. We're very excited to sit down with Jordan and chat all things sequels with him. These are Jordan King's Unequal Sequels. Enjoy. So let's start at the beginning. Let's go question number one, which is always, do you remember the first sequel that made an impact with you or the first sequel you saw in the cinema? Not only was it the first film I ever saw at the cinema, but also it was the sequel to the first book I remember ever being read as a child. So I lived in Scotland for a little bit when I was very young and my mum was supposed to take me and my sister uh, ice skating, which didn't happen. Uh, And so she was there like, okay, we'll take you to the cinema. We went to watch Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. which that was my first cinema experience, first sequel experience, probably one of the most memorable cinema experiences of my life to date. And I was, I think, four and a half at the time. Wow. So, yeah. Just to make you feel old. I feel so old right now. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, yeah, so I, I remember vividly thinking, this is a really, really big telly. And I remember telling my mum, this is like a really big telly. I remember the sound making my ears kind of feel like they were going to wobble and fall oh, off my head. Magic. I remember most vividly, actually, I remember them going into the Forbidden Forest. And I remember Aragog coming with all of the spiders. And I remember my sister, who was three years older than me. So she was she was still only seven, tentative age for watching scary stuff. Mm. 
she was quite scared. My mum, who is, you know, an arachnophobe, she was terrified. And I was kind of there, like, leaning forwards, which was the moment I realised I might be a bit of a sadist. And I was like, <laughs> oh, this is amazing. I love it. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that was a very formative experience and probably explains some of my uh, horror leanings as I grew up. Yeah. So I was about to ask, does that mean you were a fan of the original? But you couldn't have seen the original at that point, right? Of the first Harry Potter? Uh, no. So, I mean, the original came out in, what, 2000, 2001? Something like so, that. So, yeah, I was only, what, like three? I had no idea. Yeah. Um, My gran read me the first Harry Potter when I was kind of around that, like, three or four-ish mm. mark. Because, like, I don't think I obviously got the nuances of the storytelling at that age. But, like, I enjoyed stories about wizards and stuff like that. I knew that that's the kind of stuff I was into. But that meant that when I could go and watch the second one and I kind of knew what the story was because of the books I could look at the screen and go that's Harry that's Hagrid yeah and that was enough to to make me love it have you come to accept now that this is the worst of the Harry Potter series though yeah it's it's, it's harsh, Dave. I mean harsh. The, the child inside me is crying right now but um but no I mean it is on balance it is the worst I mean to, to think about the fact that it's the shortest of the books mm. uh, or or at least its second shortest only to Philosopher's Stone. But it's the longest film. Like, it's two hours, 43 minutes long. <sighs> That's just insane. How did you sit there as a four and a half year old during all of that? This is this is kind of what amazes me because obviously you have this like magical idea in your head of like when you're a child, you go to the cinema and when people talk about it, they're like, oh, it's like an escape from the world. Mm. And when I was a kid, I remember feeling like, oh my God, it's like I've been on another planet. But then like you grow up and you watch the film again and you realise it felt like that because I was in there for about five years. Like, mm. I aged significantly. I was four when I went into that <laughs> film and I was closer to 18 by the time I came out of it. <laughs> like, it... <laughs> It's it stuck with me, and the reason why I can only remember specific things like oh Aragog, or I can remember the Harry stabbing the diary with the basilisk fang. Yeah, like I probably I probably did fall asleep, maybe even at that age, because it is just it's a long one, isn't it? I fall asleep to it now, let alone if I was four and a half. <laughs> it's... There are things about it that I love because I do love that whole world. Like I, I really like Kenneth Branagh's sort of campiness as Gilderoy Lockhart. Mm. And I do think that as I've grown older, I appreciate how dark it is. Like going from the like magic golden whimsy of Philosopher's Stone to like, okay, there's blood on the walls and people are being petrified and we're going to go into dark chambers and there's this snaking serpentine thing going around the grounds of Hogwarts. Like that's like proper horror shit <laughs> that raises some serious questions for me how big are the pipes in that school for that massive snake to be able to get around the pipes not only that but as we learned not too long ago because uh jk rowling not only can't keep her mouth closed on important political issues but also can't leave alone harry potter yeah. she told us that up until like the 1880s or something the students didn't have any toilets there weren't any pipes at hogwarts she said that they just magicked away anytime they went to the toilet what that, so that's officially canon, is that if a student needed to go to the loo, shit themselves and just disappear it with magic. So not only do we not know why the pipes are wide enough, we also know that they didn't exist for a while. I don't know where to go with that. But... Oh, God, that's amazing. Yeah. 
But yeah, so many questions in that movie. There's so many, so many rubbish lines in it. Like Ron going, do you think there really is a chamber of secrets? I'm like, dude, you're in a magical school for wizards. <laughs> of course there's a chamber of secrets. This is Come the one on. when um, <laughs> Rupert Grint's voice is breaking during filming, wasn't it? And yeah. it's clearly... <laughs> do you get the uh, the golden, why couldn't it be follow the butterflies? <laughs> <laughs> I think the makers of this film had a hard time because they didn't know the direction where they were going to go with it. As in, were they going to carry on being kiddie friendly like the first one? Uh, yeah. And they'd, like you said, this is quite an extremely dark book. And the, was it Chris Columbus did this one? He must have been a little bit angry yeah. when the third one comes out. It just goes, no, we're going to be fucking adults now about this. We're going dark. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They really, they, they really do like pull a kind of Joel Schumacher, Batman Forever, Batman and Robin going to, this is Zack Snyder. Yeah. Tall Chris Nolan kind of DC universe. It's a hell of a leap. All of a sudden, yeah, like Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, Azkaban comes around. It's like, okay, we're going to get Alfonso Cuaron. <laughs> He's only made this like niche road movie that's like full of sex and drugs. And then all of a sudden Chris Columbus is there going, oh, mate, but you didn't like it when I went dark. Yeah. But, uh, I'd love to yeah, be in that no. Oh, yeah, so I just, I just like to, I I like the thought of even though Chris Columbus did a great job with uh, Philosopher's Stone, I I like the idea that he can't watch Prisoner of Azkaban now without kind of going, oh, you jammy bastard, because yeah. <laughs> he really did jump the shark a little bit. Uh, a little bit. Oh, so good. <laughs> right, we centered on a positive there. I thought we were going to be slagging off that film for a while. What is your favorite sequel ever? And before you answer that, I'm going to have to make sure you understood the debrief, right? Because this is a random one. But see, <laughs> ah, this is where I've got you, okay? So, you asked me what my favourite sequel was. Yes. So, like, I was there, like, best sequels of all time. Obviously, you've got, you know, your Terminator 2 or The Godfather Part 2. Yeah. If you're of my generation, Shrek 2 even. Amazing film. But... For me, I was there like, what's my favourite? And also, what to me most sums up what makes an incredible sequel? Yeah. And I was there like, nobody talks about this film. The only reviews really that are out there for it are like, this is pretty good. It's better than I expected it to be. I don't understand why it isn't talked about as one of the best sequels of all time. Psycho 2. Absolutely incredible film. And no one talks about it. I was really... I never even thought there was a Psycho no. 2 until until your pick. Yeah, and I watched it and I would say I was pleasantly surprised. But this is the thing. Like, barely anybody knows about Psycho 2, let alone Psycho 3, Psycho 4, and Bates Motel, not the TV series with Freddie Highmore, but the straight-to-TV film, which is admittedly an abomination. Psycho 2, on the other hand, is like, if there was ever a horror film ever made that didn't need a sequel, Psycho. Because it's got it's got one of the best, most iconic endings of all time. Like, the, the shot of Norman in the cell with the skeleton sort of, like, slowly coming across the face and then just those credits with the car being dredged Mm. and it's like wow i've just watched one of the best things of all time you know for years since everyone just said it's one of the best films of all time we don't need to know anything else here we know everything about norman bates we've got the reveal about his mother we have that bait and switch with uh marion crane like nothing else needs to be said so why on earth 23 years later would anyone go psycho 2 mate that's what i want and so (laughs) 
I watched I watched it because I found out it existed. When did you watch it? Sorry, when did you watch it? I was uh, studying an Alfred Hitchcock module at university. Of course. I was I was writing a four thousand word essay about Alfred Hitchcock. Why wouldn't you? And I'd watched I'd watched Psycho like five six times over the course of like three weeks to the point where I was there like okay I, I'm thinking about my mum more than I should be right now and <laughs> and I. Uh, <laughs> I was I was there like I cuz I've got letterboxd and when I when you're on the page on the letterboxd app I'm not getting paid to promote letterboxd by the way when you're on when you're on the page for letterboxd at the bottom of it it's got related films and it was like the psycho 2 3 4 blah 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 and I was there like okay Psycho 2. And I found out it's directed by Richard Franklin, who also directed Road Games, which is kind of like a Jewel-esque Australian horror with Jamie Lee Curtis, yeah. who, psycho connection there being, obviously she's the daughter of Janet Lee, Marion Crane, so that's quite cool anyway. But I found out it was it was directed by him. It's written by uh, Tom Holland, not Spider-Man Tom Holland, obviously. <laughs> But Tom Holland of Child's Play and Fright Night fame. Yeah. And the idea of it, like, I watched the I watched the trailer for it. The trailer basically shows you Norman Bates stood outside that iconic, his, his mother's house. I kind of had, like, the goosebumpy feeling of just seeing that anyway, because it's such a, like, instant synaptic piece of horror iconography anyway. And then I found out, like, the idea behind it is that it's not trying to continue what the first Psycho film did. It's not trying to, like, mm. replicate those kind of terrors that Alfred Hitchcock did so well. This is going to be, like, a psychological deconstruction, which is all about interrogating once someone's built this monster, which Norman Bates has been in the cultural consciousness for so long, once someone's built that monster, is it possible to then rehabilitate them? Do we project onto them what we want to see? Or is it possible for them to change? And I was there, like, even now talking about it, I'm kind of like, this is quite a goosebump-inducing idea because it's like a comment on horror as a genre and, like, all of the hysteria that comes up where people, they're like, oh, if you watch a scary film, it's going to turn you into a psychopath. And at the same time, it's Anthony Perkins coming back to a role that he played 23 years before as if he'd never left it, as if it was always mm. with him. And the way that it plays out... It isn't trying to be Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho 2. It is very much Richard Franklin's Psycho 2. Yeah, I absolutely love it. It does exactly what a sequel should do. It makes you think about the first film in a different way. It does something entirely different without feeling like a betrayal. And That's the important thing, isn't it? Yeah. Is that it made a different movie. It wasn't more of the same. It was. It's a different movie. And it normally... Normally when there's a massive gap between the film and its sequel, that's normally a red flag for me. Absolutely. And I'm normally thinking that it's going to be rubbish. It's going to be a nostalgic look back and just a remaking of the original. And this really wasn't, genuinely wasn't at all, because it is much deeper into Norman's psyche, like you mentioned. I, yeah, I'm really surprised about how how good the movie was, to be honest. Because when it, when it came up, it's like, this cut, has he got these the wrong way around? Has he got me, like... <laughs> but no, I really understand why you chose yeah. it. Absolutely. Yeah, because I, I think putting my sort of critical hat on, there are things about this film that don't work so well. Some of the supporting mm. performances are a little bit suspect. Maybe Meg Tilly's character as Mary is a little bit underdeveloped at times. Some of the twists are maybe almost a little bit of a twist too far. There's something, I mean, I, I could just spoil, but the, the ending of this film definitely makes you kind of go, 
Hang on, wait, what? Did they do that? Um, and then we, we had a rule: on? if it's over twenty years, go ahead and spoil it. So, all right, okay, right, okay. So, <laughs> so you you find out at the at the end of Psycho Two, which for for those who don't know, which will be basically everyone anyway, because yeah. there's about sixty people that have seen this film. The whole the whole premise of the film is that Norman's been released from the psychiatric facility that he's been kept in, <laughs> and they've decided in the state of California that. It is a okay to send a man that is proven <laughs> mentally unstable straight back to Mama's house, the scene of all of his earlier crimes. I mean, I can I can just about pass the fact that okay, he's been rehabilitated. It's been over twenty years. Let him go back to living in the world because you know he was ultimately a victim in a lot of ways. Yeah. There's nuance there to do with like how much it's the mother's fault for how he was, how much it's him using her as a as a scapegoat for some of his more like perverse tendencies. But ultimately, like, one of the cool things or one of the amazing things about the first Psycho film is that you felt sympathy for this character that was doing these horrific things. He was with his nervous hands, like the way Anthony Perkins, like, has his hands clenched all the time, has his hands in his pockets, has these twitchy mannerisms. You felt kind of sorry for the dude. But still, sending him back to the house where all of these murders happened, where his mother lived, is it's shady. So obviously, <laughs> when bodies start turning up in the local area, and people talk about seeing a woman's silhouette in a window and Norman's getting phone calls that sound like they're his mother's voice or he sees notes on the side. Obviously, you know, when you've got Sam Loomis's wife, sister, prowling around trying to get Norman reinstitutionalized, and you've got a psychologist trying to convince everyone that Norman's okay, but things are kind of pointing to him about to crack and the local townsfolk are all brandishing their pitchforks saying okay the monsters come back we need to stab him mm. obviously things sort of set up that maybe norman's gone a bit crazy again but the film the film interrogates that willfulness to place him as the figure of blame really really well like mm. whereas some films would lean on the iconography of the first film to like prop up something really flimsy what richard franklin does incredibly well here is subvert that iconography and weaponize it as part of the character study of Norman Bates. Mm. So, like, you have these scenes where Mary's Mary's staying at Norman's house, which, admittedly, red flag for us as audience anyway, and especially when she gets in the shower at one point, uh, recalling a certain other mildly famous shower sequence, uh, makes you a little bit concerned. But there's a point where he's making Mary a sandwich and he's holding the knife, and you sort of see the glint in it. Yeah. And you can see that he's actively disturbed by holding this knife as if the camera's willing him to do something with it. Or when she's in the shower and he removes the little peephole and he's looking, it's like the camera's willing him to recreate the past. There's this really like cool sort of hauntological effect of we know what's happened here before. The characters in the film know what's happened here before. We know that because of the way that horror tends to take these like cyclical roots of like Resident Evil we expect at some point he's going to become possessed by mother again yeah. and time and again he's not doing it which is making this who done it mystery that's going on side by side with that all the more compelling because you're there going okay so is it Lila Crane Loomis is it the psychologist that's trying to convince everyone he's rehabilitated is it Mary even like who is it that's trying to push his buttons and then ask the question if you push those buttons for long enough, who's then to blame if something does happen? Yeah. I didn't see the twists coming. 
I don't know if I wasn't looking out for them properly, but I was generally surprised when I found out the daughter and the mother were in it together. And I was like, I missed that. It was great. I think it is. It's it's one of those twists that it's a little bit of a cheat on uh, Tom Holland's part as the writer because for me, any really good film twist has to have that gotcha moment after it where you go back and then you go, "Oh, that was clever." Mm. Like Christopher Nolan mm. does it really well with films like The Prestige or even with like Interstellar, where you get to the the final moment and then all of a sudden you're there, like, "Okay, next time I watch this, it's going to change everything." Whereas with this there's kind of always this baseline level of suspicion around Mary and her mum, where it's like they're just amongst the group of people that you're suspicious of. But yeah. when it does eventually surface, you could go, this is a bit silly. But the brilliance of the film is, is you're so invested in Norman and what he's going through at that point in time yeah. that finding out who it is and the emotional rather than the logical effect of that, especially given how much Mary's been key to his continued rehabilitation and how she has gone from a position of going, okay, mum, I'm going to help you out with this. We're going to catch him, A, to, oh, hang on, people are trying to make him go bad again and he's not doing it. He really does want to become a better man. Except it's Norman that's fooled her, really, isn't it? Because ultimately he's been killing people from the start. That's the thing that got me about it, is that he's the one that killed Toomey at the, at the start, right? He's... Have I missed? Have I got that no, right? He, like, he killed, you know, uh, yeah, the motel guy, right? Yeah, he killed Toomey. So you know, and so actually, he's been murdering people all right the way through. <laughs> I feel like I feel like I'm all of a sudden being gotcha myself. So I, for some reason, I just didn't even think about that. <laughs> all I got to say about this film is that it's more ambitious than I thought it was going to be. Mm. It's a much well better made film than I was expecting like like you were talking the cinematography and the camera movements and the score is absolutely banging it's Jerry Goldsmith wasn't it it was great it's Jerry Goldsmith and the thing with the score is that Bernard Herrmann's score is so iconic Mm. for Psycho like even if you've not seen Psycho like obviously people know the iconography with the mother and they know the shower scene but like Bernard Herrmann like those stabbing strings have been everywhere for like every every generation of horror films since has been there like we want a moment that's even a quarter as good as bernard herman's score for psycho and jerry goldsmith like it's such a like melancholic sort of contemplative very emotionally manipulative piece like all the way through like it really does kind of just like gently unspool as the film goes Mm. on and gets into your head a little bit so like by the time you get to the end of the film it's one of those where the score is taking you on that journey just as much as the characters or the, the plots machinations have. And then obviously yeah. by the time you get to the very end as well, you've got the ultimate, ultimate plot twist being that Norman's mother isn't Norman's mother, <laughs> but his other mother has been working at the cafe. <laughs> when you say it like that, Jordan, it sounds like it's and not very so, good, but in the movie I really enjoyed it. <laughs> but, but, this, but this is the thing, is that, again, like I come back to the fact that Psycho is a film that did not yeah. ever need a sequel. Agreed. Like nobody asked for it, nobody wanted it, nobody expected it. And when it was delivered, no one would have expected it to hold your attention, let alone get you to a point where you'll go with some really quite out there twists and turns that reconfigure a lot of the established narrative. Admittedly, uh, if you watch Psycho 3, which uh, Anthony Perkins himself directed, which interestingly, that he kind of tried to do like a bit of a neon-soaked 
like 80s sex oh. and drugs kind of thing with it which was like the the tagline for that film i'm pretty sure was mother's back and like it was basically about him being fully dressed up all the time killing everyone doesn't really care undoes everything that psycho 2 tries to do basically but um mm. by the time you get to the end of psycho 2 and you you have the the moment where he kills other mother and he you get that like final shot which is one of my favorite final shots in like any horror film i think it's a really really powerful especially when you're coming off the back of maybe the best final shot in a horror film anyway like the the image of him mm. with you know you've got mother silhouette at the window of the of the house you've got the sort of smoke rolling across and you've got him stood there and you know that like things are starting again mm. it's such a it's such a like chills inducing yeah. kind of thing to watch that i just think that Whilst there may be some technically better film sequels yep. out there, you know, like I've mentioned before, things like Terminator 2, Incredible, Shrek 2, or uh, Empire Strikes Back, you know, loads of incredible sequels. This has to be the one that I expected the absolute least from yeah. and got the absolute most from yeah. because of it. And I'm I'm confused by the end a little bit. I mean, I, I kind of lost a little bit. It lost me a little bit with the oh, where the stabbing started, it. essentially. Because I was like, uh, uh, yeah, just lost me a little bit with that bit. I was like, that's a bit much. I'm confused as to whether whether it was Norman's mother who'd been killing people, or whether it was Norman who was killing people, prompted by his real mother. So the the implication is that it was, I just want to get her name right, so Emma Spool, played by Claudia Bryant, She's really, really yeah. good as well, by the way. I, I said that some of the supporting cast aren't particularly good, but I find mm. that there is something quite authentically creepy about her from the off. And by the time you get to the reveal of who she actually is supposed to be, you kind of are there like, okay, yeah, she was giving me some some weird vibes. This this checks out to an extent. the The implication is very much given that like she has she has set everything in motion. She's been trying to almost honey trap Norman back into. Oh, I didn't ways. get that. I'm pretty sure Norman it, Norman kills Toomey and that bit. But does Norman kill the kid in the basement because he's locked? But in he the isn't loft? really locked in the loft, is he? Because it was unlocked. Well, yeah, but who? Well, this is why yeah, it's go good. Yes, honestly, I don't know. What's that's the question, isn't it? This is the thing. Is he? I still don't know. I still don't know if Norman's really, really guilty or if it's Emma. Emma Spool, who's who's guilty, who's doing these things, or uh, I liked it. Thank you for ringing into our lives, Jordan. <laughs> uh, no, you're you're very you're very much welcome. I feel like as as well as as an aside at the at the end of like a an especially long day when when you actually like try and think about everything that happens in it, you kind of are there like it. It is one of those that like there are so many different levels going on at the same time. There's so many uh, sort of counters and counters again where you're rooting for Norman to have been rehabilitated. Then you're seeing signs that maybe things aren't okay. You're seeing characters sort of double cross mm. him and then cross back on themselves. That by the time you do get to the end of it, it is properly a yeah. mindfuck, but an intentional mindfuck. I think the reason I didn't haven't watched it before is because probably yeah. that period in the 80s, it seems every horror was getting a sequel and... They were all rubbish, to be honest. They were, I can't really remember an area of, of, of good ones. But but that's another thing as well that it has going for it, is that a lot of horror franchises, for some reason, had this thing going where they were having a good third film after a bad second film. It was like they tried to do a straight sequel and were there like, nope, that's not working. And then they'd do this like 
slightly more out there, slightly weirder third film and that mm. would go, okay, course correction. So like you had with the Nightmare on Elm Street, Nightmare on Elm Street 2, eh, take it or leave it. Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors, wow, cool. Or you'd have uh, Exorcist and then you'd have Exorcist 2, Heretic, and it's like terrible. Exorcist 3, good. Uh, and then same same with like Halloween, Halloween 2. It's got its fans. I think if you're a fan of the Halloween franchise anyway, as with a lot of horror franchises, you yeah. forgive a lot more than you probably should because you're you love the characters and you love the iconography. But like Halloween three season mm. of the witch, really, really out there, impressive third instalment. Whereas like with Psycho, didn't need a sequel, got a sequel, and then all of a sudden they hit it out the park with the second film. And it's only actually after that then that it started to get where you go, okay, now I remember why yeah, yeah, there yeah. didn't need to be sequels. But the thing that's golden <laughs> is that that second film stands up when it has absolutely no right to, but it's still one of the most rewarding, I didn't expect this, but look what yeah, I ended up getting agreed. kind of experiences. I, t- I tend to like the kind of mess with your mind psychological horrors rather than I like sort of blood and guts horrors. Mm. And I think my, maybe this is why this appeals because it's kind of like somebody mm. somebody having their their kind of sanity tested by other people isn't it really and it's not your mind that's twisted it's not you that's taken on this journey it's norman's taken on the journey for you and you kind of you you almost feel really sympathetic for him don't you it's not a i know he's the he's the big bad but he's he's a very sympathetic big bad at the end i think i think so much of that does just come from the fact that anthony perkins gave everything to that role like he made it incredibly iconic possibly to the detriment of his career outside of psycho like he tried to do a few things elsewhere like he's in a really good awesome wells film called the trial which doesn't get much sort of talked about but it's really good film uh he directed psycho 3 wow at the same time that he'd only recently been diagnosed with hiv which would you know take his life way before his time but the work that he did with psycho and even with the worst sequels that came after two he's still so invested in Norman Bates as a character that you'll watch three and four just to see him in them again because of what he does with that character. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. What has been your most disappointing sequel? It's not the worst sequel, but the one, you know, you're winning with high expectations and it just wasn't what you wanted. So my my pick would be uh, David Brent, Life on the Road, as a as a disappointing sequel. Because fundamentally, the at the end of the at the end of the office TV series, you see David stand up to the office bully, finally. Yeah. Everything ends on a kind of that that very mm. Ricky Gervaisian kind of somber note with a little bit of hope and then life on the road comes around and all of a sudden it's still doing sort of the same jokes but they don't work anymore because david brent worked when he wasn't doing anything and now he's Mm. kind of getting this big film and he's going on tour and even though things are still going wrong for him yeah he's not the loser in the same way that he always was and it just really disappointed me because 
there's a, a moment where the girl that he likes in the office that he doesn't ever talk to uh, says that I think that he's he's doing he's doing this as in the tour that he's going on in the film. I think he's doing this because he's worried that it won't be as good as it was the last time. And then she goes, and it isn't. It's much worse. And like the thing is. <laughs> That that sums up the film. It is much worse, and all of a sudden, as well, he's got these weird mannerisms that come in that weren't really there before. Like, there's this giggle that seems to have come from possibly like Derek, maybe, yeah. or from somewhere else. Anyway, that isn't very mm. David Brentian. The songs that are in it are kind of a little bit too. This is Ricky Gervais stand-up stuff. That's that's just being put into a David Brent film. And I just, yeah, yeah I was just really disappointed. I waited a long time to watch it. Yeah. I really held off on watching it because I thought, this is going to disappoint me. So I didn't. And then I watched it about two months ago, I think it was. And I was I was kind of quite chilled out at the time. And I thought, I'll give this a go because I really, really like Doc Brown, who sort of co-stars mm. in it. And I'd heard a quality street on, uh, I like, saw it on YouTube or something. And I thought, that was actually quite funny. So I was there like, I'll watch it. And I did. And I just thought, eh. I love that answer. That is absolutely an acceptable answer, mainly because the two office Christmas specials that end the series Mm. are my favourite things in the whole world ever. I love love that Christmas special. I love Dawn and Tim in that last one. I love David standing up to Finchie. I love the music. I love the. the, I I I sometimes when I'm when I'm feeling a bit sad, I will put on Only You by Yazoo because it cheers me up. Yep. Because of because of that film, because of that not that film, that, that last episode of that series of that ending, I absolutely love it to pieces, and it completely. Dave and I went to university together. We made yeah. we made films together. The Office was a massive, massive influence on what we did because yeah. it was right at that time, yeah. and I think you know it was huge. And you're absolutely right. David Brent, Life on the Road, could not. Go, it couldn't have gone any, up anywhere. It could only have gone down because we don't. We want David to be saved. We want him to be the hero. We want him to do something good. We want him to tell yeah. Finchie to fuck off. You know, we want him to stand up for someone to thing, be something. That's the thing that gets me is that David's entire like trajectory of like moral enlightenment or whatever you want to call it, his victory, it could never be anything grander than telling him to fuck off like that. That is yeah. the that is the pinnacle of what he is capable of. Because that's of. his bravery. Because he wants people to like him so much. Exactly. And there's that moment where he goes, "Do you know what? I don't give a shit if you like me or mm. not, because she likes me." And exactly. You know? And then it's and such that's a, it. And to me, it's then such a cop out that towards the end of Life on the Road, when you've had the band slagging him off for the entire tour, everything's been going wrong. He he's just been pitiful still. But he's kind of almost falling upwards in in a weird kind of way. Like he's still doing the thing that he always dreamed of doing, and he's realizing it's terrible. Which in and of itself is maybe a, a kind of a right idea. But then you have this like horrible tonal shift in the fa- final like fifteen minutes, where all of a sudden they're there, like, "Oh, we want people to feel positive about David again." The band actually secretly liked him all along. Oh, they're mm-hmm. quite happy to go and have a drink with him, even though they think he's a loser. And you just think. Why did I waste my time with yeah. this then? Why why did I spend this time watching him? What was what was it all for? Whereas with the end of the Office Christmas specials, I didn't feel like that. It felt like such an understated, perfect way to end it all. 
and that's the problem with the worst sequels or the most disappointing is it's the ones where it's not like it's just terrible. It's just disappointing. It just makes you see the original thing in a way that you didn't want to have to see yeah, it. Absolutely. And and again, it's it's what we always hate about sequels, isn't it? Is that the characters don't grow. Absolutely no growth. And in fact, retrograde in yeah. the case of David Brenton that we're talking about here. Yeah, absolutely. It didn't have the characters either. It depended too much on David Brent. David Brent's great as a side character, but it needs the Tims and the Dawns, the Gareths, to support him. Gareth. Who do they replace them with? Basically just cardboard, cut-out sort of versions. It's just not as good that you don't care about, I'm afraid. And I'm going to change I quite like the songs. I once in a while put the songs on. Uh, it's just, it seems to be something we can all agree on when we were in the office in my work. We're like, oh, let's put the David Brent music on because we can all have a laugh and it's quite nothing music in the background. Would you would you say it works better out of the context yes. of the film though? Like if you just listen to it as an album? Yeah. Because maybe, maybe that is a lot of the reason why the songs fall so flat is because I was just getting gradually more and more disappointed with the film as an experience. Maybe listening to the songs detached from the context. I saw David Brent and Foregone Conclusion before they released the film, like a few years when he was, oh, when he, they, he's they just were doing testing. Doing, so I heard Slough and some other ones before the film, like three years before the film came out. I think he was touring those songs. I love the fact that they use the, the free love yeah. on the free love freeway for a free view advert. Yeah, I was about to say actually <laughs> that is the one song other than Equality Street which I liked because of Doc Brown. Free love on the free love freeway. I I do get that song in my head from time to time because that's another one that I had heard out of <laughs> out of context of the film. And I did well, that's good it, because so. it's in the first season of The Office as well, isn't it? Yeah, the training episode. Oh, Gareth gets the guitar. Yeah. yeah, you're right. <laughs> you're just making me want to go and rewatch The Office. To be honest, what is your worst sequel ever? Easy, Hunchback of Notre Dame Two. Absolutely fucking horrific. <laughs> I love it. Why? Disgusting. <laughs> Disgusting. Uh, okay, so, as some people may know, in the 1990s, Disney went on a little bit of a hot run of some of the best animated films of all time, including, you know, films like Aladdin, The Lion King, Pocahontas, mm. uh, Beauty and the Beast, uh, Hunchback of Notre Dame, which, at the time it was released, I feel like didn't get quite as much of a fan sort of appreciation as the other films that came out at the same time, because it had more mature, darker themes. But Hunchback of Notre Dame in Jaws is probably Disney's most ambitious, boldest, darkest, most operatic, epic thing that they've done. I'm not a huge fan of The Lion King, the first Lion King, which probably would get me shot in a lot of corners. So that might colour <laughs> my that might colour my <laughs> that might colour my opinions just a little bit. And also just on that I forgive you because you were you weren't there adored. when it came out, Jordan. It was a big thing. I wasn't even a twinkle in my father's exactly. eye at that point I'll, in time. I forgive you. <laughs> Carry on. But The Hunchback of Notre Dame is the film that made me, more than any other, I think, fall in love oh, with yeah. animation. Like, I think growing up, when I watched that film, it made me realise at a very impressionable age how anima- animated films were this whole different world to live-action films. Like, you could do things with storytelling and with music and with characters and animation that you couldn't do in the same way. Like Frollo as a as a villain was one of the scariest things I'd seen in my entire life. To this day, Hellfire is like instant goosebumps for me. It's one of the most like furious things, and I don't have any idea how Disney even were able to sign off on that song. It, I mean, it's he's singing about his his sort of like involuntary concubine who he wants to 
have sex with or else curse to eternal damnation. Like this is in a <laughs> Disney film. It's like a family film. And 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 it's got the the thing that I loved about Hunchback of Notre Dame to to make it about me as everyone does with every yep. film that they love was that as a young chubby kid that would always fancy someone at school that would never go out with me, it taught me probably the most valuable lesson that you could learn as a young chubby kid at school that didn't think anyone yep. would ever go out with them. You don't need somebody to romantically love you for you to be worth anything as a human being. It is perfectly fine and very healthy psychologically to actually learn that loving yourself and surrounding yourself with people that love you for who you are in a non-romantic way is probably the most enriching thing that a person can have so the the friendship between Quasimodo and Esmeralda when divorced from the context of him feeling like only romantic love could possibly do and the friendship that he then forms with Phoebus who doesn't really want to be friends with it first because he sees him as his like rival but then eventually they have this understanding with one another that they both care for Esmeralda and they can do that in in their own ways without stepping on each other's toes it's such a, a beautiful moral message to teach kids to teach adults to teach anyone that needs it that you finish that film and you think ah oh, what a beautiful thing nothing nothing could ever taint this 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 will make <laughs> me well up as I show it to my children in the future. And then you find out that Hunchback of Notre Dame 2 exists. And then you watch Hunchback of Notre Dame 2. And then minute by minute, over the course of just shy of an hour and ten minutes, you start to learn to hate yourself again in a lot of ways. (laughs) It is morally ugly. Uh, It is visually ugly. It is musically Mm -hmm. ugly. It takes complex nuanced beautifully written characters and turns them into essentially you know animation paper cadavers that have nothing about them anymore and it it does seem to me to be an act of violence on the original film like a willful attempt to see is it possible to kill something that people love and pass it (laughs) off as art wow Wow. tell us how you really feel I think I should say I've never seen the original. I've never seen the first Hunchback of Notre Dame. I was 15 when that came out, so I was I was interested in girls and beer and doing mm. things that I should have been doing. <laughs> and so I didn't watch the original. I have watched the second one because I watched oh. it for, for this movie, for this, and I was like, I, I watched Poor it and man. I thought, yeah, it's just a kid's film. It's just like, it's no worse than 50% of the crap that my son watches on Netflix. But I absolutely understand now I completely understand why, what you're saying because I hadn't seen the first one. I hadn't mm. seen it in context. And so I completely get why it would it would wreck it for you. It's I mean it's not greatly it's not well animated or anything like that. It's you know the it's it's I struggle to f- think it was a Disney film to be honest because it was so poorly animated. If there's any consolation in that, it's the fact that because you have hadn't seen the original film, you didn't have to you didn't have to see something get destroyed. You just watch something mm. that was badly made. And sometimes you can watch something that's badly made and enjoy it for what it is, yeah. even if it's terrible. Like, I wouldn't say I enjoyed it. It was mercifully short. That was the you know, <laughs> merciful, Mercifully but, short is maybe, if if I squint a little bit and, and sort of grind my knuckles, I could maybe say it's mercifully short. And that could go on its poster as praise. <laughs> it's hard because in, in the, like... In the late 90s, early 2000s, Disney made this pivot towards 
straight to home video films. I sp- I've actually spent the last two months nearly for whatever reason I'm I don't know why I've been watching all of them. I've watched all of their straight to video yeah. sequels, and I've seen I've seen the worst of the worst, which is this. And then there's you know about three and a half thousand miles, and then there's like your Pocahontas two and your Mulan two and your Jungle Book two and just you know any other classic Disney film that didn't need a sequel. Slap a two on it. Stick it on a DVD, and some poor, unsuspecting parent will pay three pounds for it in a bargain bin at a supermarket at some point in their life, or put it on on Disney Plus because they mm. really should know better. But <laughs> that's me. <laughs> they got very happy with. They realised that they'd come out of this Renaissance era where they'd made these incredible films, and they were sort of floundering a little bit at that point in time, where they they'd considered a pivot towards. Disney being more of a theme park based company and putting all of their effort into Disneyland and Disney World. They'd seen what Pixar were doing with like Toy Story, Finding Nemo, Monsters Inc., that kind of thing. So they were very much aware that CGI was blazing the trail for what animation was going to look like next. And so Disney were kind of dabbling in that a little bit. So you get these like really nice 3D sort of um, rotoscope style moments in films like Tarzan or Treasure Planet. Like, Treasure Planet was one of the first films I remember seeing at the cinema after, like, Harry Potter 2 and stuff like that. And I remember thinking that, like, Long John Silver's, like, fancy, like, attachments and gadgets and stuff were really cool. But they made this, like, slew of straight-to-video films basically to just, like, keep the characters in circulation and in the public consciousness. And they were cheap. Like, they could do this on computers at, like... They look cheap. The lowest lowest possible cost, minimal amount of effort. And it was like, we can churn this out. And because it's got a name that people love on it, people will buy it. Which is crazy because Disney have notoriously been so difficult in recent years with anything that wants to use their IP. Like, they're, they're so ruthless that, like, a kid died and the parents wanted to put Spider-Man on the grave. And they were there like, yeah, sorry, copyright infringement. If they wanted to, and they did it, apparently, the time that they made Hunchback of Notre Dame 2, they were more than happy to crucify their own film. Like, their own art. Yeah. You, a, you can tell pounds. when you're watching it, the credits mm. and you can see how many uh, studios they, I'm going to use the word, hoard itself out to. It, it's, it's crazy in that amount of numbers, like all over the world. And that, that wouldn't have happened on the, the Hunchback of Notre Dame, the first films. And they had a special division, didn't they, for straight sequels uh, back then. It was just it's, horrible. Oh, it's disgusting. Too. I do have questions about this film that annoyed me, apart from most things, is the, the, the child looks nothing like his mother. Like it was, they were. No, it was afraid they were like, oh, we can't have another like. um, I don't know what's the word I'm trying to use. Romany. Yeah, person. We're going to have to make him look like the Mm blue-eyed, blonde-haired father, and that confused me for a while. I just didn't. I didn't like any of it. Any of it. Can Can I also Can I also say just on like inconsistency with the visuals? Like, Rich, you won't know this because you haven't seen the first film. Esmeralda, whose name kind of calls to mind Emerald whose eyes in the first film are quite vividly depicted as green, uh, inexplicably in the sequel, for no apparent reason, has blue eyes. Oh, that's lazy. That's the worst of its crimes in terms of hair, because her skin colour changes five times in this film. <laughs> her skin colour is like a Dulux colour chart <laughs> that like a kid's just pointing at going, what did it look like last time, mummy? Yeah. Oh, that one. And like they just change it and change it. And then also, like, as I was saying before, Frollo, one of the most, like, powerful, imposing, commanding villains of all time. 
And like this time out, you get Sarouche, the magician who wants to steal a bell. And what's inside the bell? Jewels. Because what does that teach you? Teach you that the real treasure is on the inside. But also it teaches you that if you ring that fucking bell, all of those jewels will be shattered and will mean I did wonder that. <laughs> How did they get the voice cast back? Because, Rich, this is a good voice cast, and normally on these sequels, none of them return. This is the thing. Like On some of, on some of the sequels, it was like, we'll get the voice actor yeah. brother in. Or, like, you know, uh, I think with... It was a Disney-slash-Pixar collaboration thing, Buzz Lightyear of Star Command, which actually is one of the good sequel things that they did do uh but they got um tom hanks's brother in for that who does the voice on toys and does it at the theme parks and whatnot as well but here they did manage to somehow it must be a contract thing surely surely. they got tom holes back they got kevin klein they got demi moore they got they got jennifer love hewitt as as madeline who's one of the most like just completely uninspiringly drawn literally and narratively drawn characters that you could ever hope to see in a Disney film or a film that happens to have the Disney logo on it. And also the, um, it's Cloppin. Yeah. In the first film, Cloppin's this like enigmatic sort of morally ambiguous, uh, sort of almost vaudevillian soothsayer circus kind of guy that he sings his cool songs and you're there like, Oh, he's cool. He's interesting. And then, like, in the sequel film, like, it's got some of the most nauseatingly dumb lyrics for any for any song in any yeah. Disney film. And you just you just find yourself thinking, like, you it's it's almost got the looking away from a car crash effect of you can't help but just look and go, what happened it, here? Look, researching it on IMDb, and I don't know how, because you can't trust IMDb, but it seems that this was made either in 97, and they didn't... They didn't bring it out for like four years or something. It was it was made. They finished making it in two thousand, and they didn't release it until two thousand and two, so that they could release it as part of their line of like Disney home video entertainment oh. things. Like they they held it back, which you know for those two years between two thousand and two thousand and two, you could have gone. Maybe it was like artistic integrity or something. Maybe they were there like we'll hold this one back because it's actually quite bad and maybe we'll just like brush it under the carpet and pretend it didn't exist. But in the most cynical move possible, they were just they were just waiting to release it at a time where they could maybe flog a few DVDs by releasing it in a specific But by that chain. point we had Toy Story Two and animation went on a massive step to what this looked like. So yeah, it's just mm. rubbish. You're right though. I've just looked at the cast on IMDB and the cast is incredible. Yep. They like yeah. pulled some real magic together. And I didn't realise that, you know, like Demi Moore was back. Yeah. And they got Hayley Joel yeah, Osment as Jason well. Jason Alexander is back and Kevin Klein's back. At the, like said, at the like, time where Hayley Joel Osment was actually, you know, yep. properly yeah. famous. And Michael McKean's the baddie like, from uh, from Better Call Saul. Um, Spinal yeah. Tap, He's yeah. the mm-hmm. bad guy, isn't he? Yeah, Spinal Tap, yeah. No. But you're right, the baddie remind, kind of reminded me of Paddington 2's baddie, in a way. Like, Felix, Phoenix. Yeah, having to like put on his makeup and his... Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, okay, put yeah. his wig on and all that kind of stuff. Obviously, like... Paddington 2, absolute world above this one, but yeah. you know. But as well, it's it's that thing of don't make a sequel unless you've got some sense of this is going to illuminate the, the, the source material or this is going to do something mm. new or fresh. What they've done here is they, they seem to have decided that what happened at the end of Hunchback of Notre Dame wasn't Quasimodo's happy ending, which it 100% was, and that's why it's so incredible. 
they decided that the only feasible happy ending for Quasimodo is that he gets the girl. Could be any girl. Could be the most dull girl in the world, Madeline, no offence. <laughs> but like he has to get a girl and then all of a sudden it's like narrative art complete, move it move it along. Whereas with Psycho and Psycho 2, I was there like, unexpected sequel, unwanted sequel, but look how much is in this. This is unexpected, unwanted sequel. There is a reason why yeah. it's unwanted, because it's an abomination. It wasn't needed, and I think that's going to lead on to the next question pretty well, isn't it? What film is so perfect that it had a sequel, but you don't think needed it? For me, I think one of the best musical films, even though it has got some issues, admittedly, is Grease. I think Grease is pretty much perfect as it is. Like, absolutely love it. Uh, I love the songs, I love the era, I love... The characters, it's my happy place film more than almost any other. Grease 2 is just Grease 1, switcherooed, slightly worse songs, even worse acting, even, even worse moral yeah. sort of implications. Why? There's no point to Grease 2. There's no point to it. And But the thing, the thing is, is that Grease 2's got a couple of things going for it. Namely, when I was like 10 years old and I first watched it, Michelle Pfeiffer. Yeah is like discovering Michelle Pfeiffer is never going to be a terrible thing to, to do. Uh, and then the second thing is the song Cool Rider. Bloody loved that song. I thought Cool Rider was the coolest song for a little while there. I can see why, but yeah, people, there is a big fan base for Grease 2 as well. It seems to have this this cult following, but I don't think it needs it. And when did you, did you, did you see them back to back by any chance, Grease and Grease 2? Uh, no, I saw... I was in a I was in a high school production Grease of, of Greece. Greece. No. I was in a high school production of, of Greece. I'd seen I'd seen Greece too I think it was basically I used to go to my uncle's house like every weekend without fail. He was very much like the movie man. Mum not interested, stepdad not yeah. really interested, go to my uncle's house, videos everywhere, DVDs everywhere, put something on, watch it every weekend, and I'm pretty sure that's where I first watched Greece too. I properly watched it though I think for the first time when I was doing Grease as a high school plaything, and then I was like, right, I'll bang on the DVD, see see what see what's going on with it. Which character were you in the play? I was uh, Rump or Roger, who's not actually a proper character in the film. He's got a non-speaking part in the film, but in the musical, he's got two oh. songs. He's great. He's he's got a song called Mooning, which plays in the background of one of the dancehall scene in Greece, and he's got another song called Rock and Roll Party Queen, which I think plays on a jukebox at some point. For like a whole year after doing that show, I unironically had a comb in my jean pocket, <laughs> and would occasionally take out the comb, comb over the hair, and genuinely thought that I was bringing something back. That people would find cool. I know this is this is not a popular opinion, but I genuinely hate Greece and Greece too. I'm sorry. Whoa, this is Jordan's <laughs> happy place now. You're I know, I know it is. I'm so sorry, and I, no one else agrees with me. By the way, it's lit just me. I just got out of my dark place, which is Hunchback of Notre Dame. <laughs> I was just remembering the halcyon days of Greece, and I'm then so that crying gets dropped. I'm in. so sorry. <laughs> but that being that being said. Like there are quite a lot of compelling cases to be made against Greece. One of my one of my favourite sort of things that like growing up and watching a lot more films, especially films from the seventies and eighties, is seeing at what point 
they started to try and make teenagers look like teenagers again in films or TV. Such an issue. Because in in Greece, we are supposed to believe that they're all teenagers. Sonny Lattieri looks like he's 59. (laughs) Yeah. Like, it's absolutely crazy to watch that film now. Like, I went and watched an anniversary screening of it, biggest screen possible, and you look in the background of certain shots and you're there like, I'm pretty sure that's someone's granddad in there. We're supposed to believe that he's a greaser or that he's one of the pink ladies. It's so bad. It's not well known for its authenticity. It's not that. I mean, it just it it just links with some childhood memories that I don't want to think about. I think like I just remember having being forced to watch it over and over and over again, and having no control over that. See, <laughs> I I thought I thought you were going to say that like you went to Australia and there was this girl <laughs> and like you came home I'm and she turned old. up at your high school. <laughs> no, I no. was obsessed with Grace when I was young. I I was obsessed with it. I. I I remember when the musical first came out, and I was like, "I have to go and see the musical," and it was great on the on the West End. Um, I'm I'm more in your camp than I am of the big guys. Uh, camp. No one else is I, in my I camp. It's just me. I think. I think I'm the only person who doesn't like Greece. Like you know. Are you into musicals in general? Though? No, like not really. No, not really. So, so I feel like that's. Have a you got thing. a soul? Um, well, a very small one. <laughs> oh, man, musicals are great. See, like two two of my top three films of all time are musicals, Little Shop of Horrors and Singing in the Rain. So like Good musicals music. musicals are like lifeblood for me. I absolutely love them. I don't I I can't understand how people don't like them. It just makes I, don't, I, I don't dislike all musicals. There are some that are okay and Disney musicals are generally generally fine. I like Disney movies, but they're the gateway drug for a lot of people. It's I when I I remember an ex-girlfriend taking me to see Sweeney Todd at the cinema and going, oh, don't worry, it's not a proper musical. They just they just have a few songs in it. It's like a Disney film. And then 30 seconds into it, when Johnny Depp is murdering some sort of nonsense, and I'm thinking, I just want to punch myself in the face so this stops. Can I leave? Is there something <laughs> I can do to get away from this thing? And, yeah, again, I think it's all just linked to those kind of childhood memories of being forced to watch Greece over and over again like literally back to back over and over again when all I wanted to do was watch Transformers <laughs> he's obsessed with you it got the touch. <laughs> that's the one that's the one because I was on the five when that came out day. I was prime when that came out it was my fifth birthday going to the cinema to watch that and I absolutely love that that's totally fair. <laughs> look at Dave's face <laughs> Do you ever... Do you, I've heard this story so many times now. What is your dream sequel? My dream sequel is Scooby-Doo 3. I really, really, really want it to happen one day. I know it's not going to, but I wish it would. And after Scoob came out, I it just made me yearn for Scooby-Doo 3 even more. Right. So you're a fan of the first two, I'm guessing. And tell me, tell me your relationship with those films first. Like, when did you see them? Okay, so Scooby-Doo and Scooby-Doo 2, I had both of those on DVD. And I remember that Scooby-Doo, the first movie, had a blue DVD case. Got that from the supermarket myself with my pocket money. Scooby-Doo 2 had a green ridge case. And my initial obsession with the Scooby-Doo and Scooby-Doo 2 movies were not the films. My initial obsession was the interactive menus <laughs> for the films. Because right? if you remember if you remember when DVDs had interactive menus, on Blu-rays yes. now it's so like uniform and like formal. You don't really get much in way of like Easter egg and stuff. Scooby-Doo 2 DVD, there was a game on the menus for that film 
where you were basically trying to knock over the skeleton ghoul things from um from the like monster village shack thing and like i would play that game for hours i'm pretty sure there were only like four or five possible endings this might be me realizing that i had some kind of brain damage as a child but i loved i loved those dvd menus but me and my sister would watch scooby-doo and scooby-doo 2 back-to-back double headers maybe four or five nights a week oh my school, god your poor mother but here's here's the thing this is genuinely even though i consider myself quite like knowledgeable about films quite like hip with the critical and cultural consensus like i genuinely didn't know until picking this film for this and looking at imdb and stuff like i didn't know that <laughs> i knew that critics didn't really like scooby-doo and scooby-doo 2 like I kind of knew that. What I didn't know was that fans also hate Scooby Doo and Scooby Doo too. Like there must be a specific subsection of kids that grew up in the two thousands that absolutely adore these films, and then like ninety five percent of the rest of society hates them because there was going to be a Scooby Doo three and it got cancelled because fans and critics hated it, and there was obviously no point in doing it. Oh, I feel bad I've, now. I've only ever known loving those films. I thought everyone did, and it was. It was a real, like, red pill moment where I was there like, hang on, no one likes this. But I fucking love it. I really genuinely... Okay, next question. Why do you love, love it. it? Why do you love it? Okay, so I, I, love, the, I love the Scooby-Doo cartoons, like the original Scooby-Doo cartoons. Like, so do I. Scooby-Doo-Doo-Doo. Yeah, yeah. Love it. Watch those on TV as a kid all the time. I loved the the animated TV films, like the Witch's, Witch's Ghost or... Witches Go, Cyber Chase, Aloha, Scooby-Doo. There were loads of them, basically. The live-action Scooby-Doo films, I I think they're so funny. I think they're so funny. I think that it's got one of the, like, best matches of casting to character in, like, any film going. Like, you look at at the cast for that film, and you've got Freddie Prinze Jr., who is so good. And if if you watch, like, Star Wars Rebels as well, like, as Kanan in Star Wars Rebels. He's one of my favourite Star Wars characters. And I think he's so cool. And Sarah Michelle Gellar, who obviously Buffy the Vampire Slayer, she's great. And yeah. they wanted to cast a couple that were a real couple for the film. And so they got Freddie Prince Jr. and Sarah Michelle Gellar. And Freddie Prince Jr. was actually reserved about it, which, according to you guys' faces through all of this, <laughs> uh, uh, her his reservations about the film were apparently quite well-founded. But she was there like, I've read the script. I think it's cool. We should do this had Linda Cardellini, who is like, she's just one of the best actresses. Like, honestly, she's so good in everything that she's in. I only found out like four days ago that she's Wendy in Gravity Falls, which if you haven't watched Gravity Falls, such a good TV uh, TV show. Linda Cardellini in Scooby-Doo Monsters Unleashed is like, that was like, it's made a huge impression on me. Was that a bit of an awakening for you? The orange jumpsuit (laughs) in Scooby-Doo Monsters Unleashed was... Possibly the moment I realised what love was for the first time. <laughs> yep. Like I still, I still very much love her from that like moment of seeing that as a very impressionable what like seven eight year old and being there like, what is this feeling that I feel? <laughs> and then you've got Matthew Lillard who can I just say Roger Ebert, one of the greatest film critics of all time, hates Scooby Doo, hates Scooby Doo Two. He kind of damning with faint praised it a little bit with Scooby Doo Two. But he even said Matthew Lillard is one of the most naturally gifted comic actors of his generation. Mm. And like you can't you can't argue with it. As as Shaggy Rogers, 
Matthew Lillard, Shaggy Rodgers, it's just meant to be. The fact that they didn't bring him back for Scoob is an abomination yeah. mm. because he's so perfect for the role. And then you get all of these incredible like guest appearances from like Rowan Atkinson in the first film or Isla Fisher. I don't know. They're, it's, they're really, really funny. It's got this like growing up and now realizing that so much of it, because James Gunn obviously wrote it, is like a lot of it is stoner humor and things that kind of slide under the radar when you're a kid. So you don't know the connotations. Like Shaggy saying, oh, or Mary Jane telling Shaggy that her name's Mary Jane, and him go, oh, I love that name. And it's like, okay, drugs. <laughs> yeah. All of the all of the stuff that's kind of like them getting the munchies, or like creatures in the forest being there, like we've got uh, hamburgers and scoops. They're like, okay, <laughs> like all of that stuff. It's such goofy, gawky humor that like I lapped it up as a kid, and I still lap it up now. And I think, if anything, my love for those films just proves how fickle taste is when you're a kid and how powerful nostalgia is. Mm-hmm. Because even now, knowing that people apparently think that Scooby-Doo 1 and 2 are terrible, the cancelled Scooby-Doo 3 is one of the things that I'm saddest about. Because what they were going to do with Scooby-Doo 3 was they were going to get the whole gang together, they were going to go to Scotland, the, the this like little Scottish town was going to be invaded by all these monsters, and then they were going to find out that actually the monsters were the victims, and it was going to be this like nice little moral oh, tale that sounds good. about xenophobia. And it does; it sounds really good. And I think like then this this is probably me reaching and also exercising the creative license of I fucking love Scooby Doo and Scooby Doo Two. But I think that with Guardians of the Galaxy and with the Suicide Squad, I think James Gunn has just been trying to find a crew that he loves as much as he loves. <laughs> the original Scooby-Doo crew. I think he's been trying to recreate that magic for over 20 years. Wow. And he's got that power now. He's got that power now that he could make Scooby-Doo 3 if he wanted to. Matthew Lillard would come back in a heartbeat. Freddie Prinze Jr. and Sarah, Sarah Michelle Gellar, they're not that busy anymore, really. They'd probably be kicking about for it. And Linda Cardellini, she's lovely. She'd be game for a laugh. She'd hop in. <laughs> and then... Because of his connections with DC now and with Marvel, you get some cameos in there. You could have Harley Quinn turn up in a Scooby-Doo film. <laughs> Scoob showed that Warner Brothers are willing to bastardize all of their intellectual properties. Yeah, like you could have such a fun Scooby-Doo three that would make my generation feel vindicated, and it would make you guys' generation and all the film critics of the world go, "Oh, hang on a minute, maybe they had a point." I've got to say, I don't. I certainly don't hate Scooby-Doo or Scooby-Doo 2. I don't massively... I don't have the the nostalgia feeling that you do because I was, what, 21 and 23 when they came out. I, I don't think I watched them then, but I've since watched them with my little boy and he really enjoys them. And of course you do. I don't hate them. However, I do know... Dave absolutely hates both these movies. <laughs> I really, really want to know why you hate them so much. Are you a big Scooby-Doo fan? Yeah, I've got nothing wrong with Scooby-Doo. I love Scooby-Doo. I remember the first one ending and wishing that I would get those two hours back. I, I'm i going to use the word detested that film, that first one. I really hated it. I hated pretty much everything about it. I've got no quips for the cast. I don't know if I've ever really given it a second chance, Jordan, so this is bad of me. And, and I have tried to watch the second one on TV, but I've never got through it because I thought, this is shit, and kept turning off it. Don't shoot, um, Katie, Dave. <laughs> also, second one, you've got Seth Green in it as well, and he's he's pretty, pretty good in the second one. I just don't like the storylines, I think. I'd rather... I don't know what I want from a Scooby. It just didn't entertain me. I, I met... I, 
the first time I saw it, I was at the age when you're like, oh, Scooby-Doo, it's below me. Not even below me. I'm too old for this shit, probably. I just remember really hating it. And for Jordan, for you, I'm going to rewatch them once they come on free TV. I am tempted to say that I will send you the DVDs of Scooby-Doo and Scooby-Doo 2 so you can have the full experience. You can have the interactive menus. You can play that Scooby-Doo 2 game that I played when I was a kid that is almost definitely not as good as I remember it being. Please don't. Dave looks actively worried. And, and then they can they can sit happily on your shelf for all of time as a reminder. I know, but, but I love the sound of your Scooby-Doo oh, yeah, 3. Yeah. I like the sound of Scooby-Doo 3. I think that sounds great. See, there we go. If I can just if I can just get a script off the ground. I remember what I hated about the first one. Go on. I am a big fan, and I know a lot of people aren't, of Scrappy Doo, whatever his name is, the little one. Scrappy Doo. Fucking hating. You are the only one in the whole world who is a fan of Scrappy Doo, Dave. And I think they ruined him in the first one. They made him like the bad guy and they made him this little little He was always a was little like, little no. uh, What are you what are you Yeah but what? <laughs> I related to him a little bit. Oh, right, Maybe okay. this is the jarring point then, because everyone else hates Scrappy Doo, so they love seeing him get treated like the little shit he is in <laughs> Scooby Doo. But because you love Scrappy Doo, you watch Scooby Doo and you saw him get treated like that, and that's why you hate it. Yeah, is he in the sequel? Not in the sequel, no. Not even interested. Bring <laughs> me Scrappy Doo. But the thing is that what I was going to say is the sequel is basically like it's the it's the Ready Player One of Scooby Doo. Like you get you get all the all the big villains like it's. Monsters Unleashed. You get like the the pterodactyl. You get the Black Knight. You get like you get Minor Forty Nine. Like you get all of these iconic villains just being like rolled out one after the other. You get Freddie Prince Freddie Prince Junior on a motorbike having a having a jousting contest. You're not selling it to me at all <laughs> with all that. I still I watched the trailer before we started and I thought that still looks awful. Crazy. <laughs> Crazy. Scooby-Doo 3, however, that's going to change everything. Absolutely. If you give put a, a proper... Who directed the first and second ones? I know James Gunn. Yeah, Raja Gosnell, who also directed, which, in all fairness, doesn't improve uh, his standing that much. Never been kissed, Home Alone 3, The Smurfs and Big Mama's House. <laughs> oh, he does not have a good back catalogue. <laughs> James Gunn as writer, I think that's the key with, with the Scooby-Doo films, and also their potential continuation in the future. I am surprised they haven't gone forward with a, a live another live action Scooby-Doo. I think they might have been testing the waters with Scoob and the, the kind of the pandemic ruined that. Mm. The problem honest. was they made a couple of live action films that were like sort of prequel when they're younger, didn't have the original cast and they were really, really bad. Like there was one called The Mystery Begins, I think it was. Did they? So, sorry. And there's, so there's other live action Scooby Doo films, but there's prequels with other yeah, actors. Yeah, so there's there's uh, Scooby Doo: The Mystery Begins, and I can't remember what the other one's called now off the top of my head. Uh, I think it was something to do with Loch Ness, possibly. I can't remember. Or yeah, I think I've seen the Loch Ness monster one. Yeah, but, I didn't know that. Yeah, they weren't they weren't good. But I think that for me, like growing up as well, I found myself actively following the works of the other, of the main actors in the Scooby Doo films. So, like, because I loved Scooby-Doo, I watched, like, Matthew Lillard in Scream, like, before I was old enough to really watch Scream, or in, like, 13 Ghosts, mm. or in, is it is it Hackers? Yeah, it's Hackers, isn't it? Is it? Yeah. And, like, I think, to be honest, my love for Scooby-Doo, more than almost anything else, is basically just a, this is where my love for Matthew Lillard comes from because I really do believe that he's such an incredibly gifted comic actor. He's underrated, and he doesn't he doesn't get the praise. And it crushed me to see that they didn't bring him back for the scoop because he wanted it. They didn't they didn't consult with him. 
who's been voicing Shaggy in the cartoons for ages now. They should have brought him back. And those were Jordan King's unequal sequels. Dave? Yeah? Who knew Psycho 2 even existed? Not me. Who knew it was quite good? I know, right? When it came up as his pick, I was like, really? Yeah. Surely that's going to be awful. And you know what? It's not. No. It really isn't. It's very, very watchable. I don't think I'm going to watch Psycho 3, though. I think that might be pushing it. No, I think you're right. I think that would probably be pushing it. Yeah. Maybe... Yeah, maybe if I was, it was like late at night and it just happened to be on telly, I might go, oh, I'll give this a try. Two was all right. Yeah. But I, d- I don't think I'd seek it out necessarily. I didn't even really know it existed, uh, Psycho 2 until the other day. Yeah. And uh, you, you got to vent about your hatred of Scooby-Doo. I really hate Scooby-Doo, so that was always fun. I felt a bit bad about that, thinking about it now, because he's, like you said, there's a generation that seems to love Scooby-Doo, but I don't think it's our yeah. generation. And I don't think you shot, you know, you shook... Jordan's confidence in Scooby-Doo at all. And also, his pitch for the third movie, I would watch that. Yep, me too. Here we so, go. yeah. You know, there you go. I'll give it a chance. Good. And I think we all agreed on Hunchback and Notre Dame. Again, I, ne- I never need to have to watch that, so that's fine. I've watched it once, tick, seen it. Never again. <laughs> never have to watch that again. Yeah. <laughs> that was bad. Yeah, you should check out Jordan's work. He's a very talented writer. I think he's going to go far in, in mm. that industry, the movie writing industry. Whatever it's called. I think in a few years' time, people will listen back to this podcast and go, oh, you got Jordan King on your podcast. How did you do that? Yeah. Yeah, right. he's a very good writer. I agree with you. Um, so check out his work. Just, just follow him on Twitter. He's pretty prolific on Twitter, to be fair. Yes, that's a good point. Follow him on Twitter. That's probably the best uh, promotion we can give Jordan. And should we promote ourselves? Oh, well, I suppose we probably should, shouldn't we? Yeah. You know, give us a listen. Do you know what? I got really excited this week because we got into the top 200 of the iTunes chart. Yep. So if you are listening to us on on Apple Podcasts or on iTunes, if you wouldn't mind subscribing and giving us a little like five-star review, that would really help us because I'm really keen to get in the top 100 now. So I should point out it wasn't it was for TV and film categories. That's fine. That's fine. I don't want the top 100 overall, just you know, top 100 in TV and film. That would yeah, be crazy. That, that would be amazing. Yeah. So yeah. Please, please, please give us a little thumbs up, tick, mm. like, subscribe, all that stuff. We've had a taste for it now. We want more. We have, yeah. We've tasted success and <laughs> success and we want a little more. <laughs> Go back to Pod Bible and read our interview that we did yes. for them. That was a lot of fun. We got Indie Absolutely. Podcast of the Week the other week, so that was also nice. Do you know what, Dave? Do you know what's really nice is that Podcast Bible keep posting about other articles they've written, mm. but that we've got a little ad next to all those articles. <laughs> and so every time they post about another article, there's our little that little logo comes up. I know it's um, cool, isn't it? You know, it just makes me feel happy. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, tell your friends and family about us. We're available pretty much everywhere, and we're on uh, social medias as well: uh, Twitter and Instagram. And we have a, an email address where if you want to email us for any old reason, to be fair, is at unequal sequel. At hotmail.com. Yes. And if you're checking us out on the socials, it's at unequal sequel yeah. uh, for both of those. So, yeah, unequal sequel on Instagram and at unequal sequel on Twitter. That's all I've got to say. You got to say anything else? No, that's it for me. I'm really tired. I'm going to have an afternoon nap. Jealous. Uh, thank you for listening, as always, and we will speak to you next week. Bye. Bye.